0: correct. Did I make you watch a lot of rom-coms when we were little, would you say? Uh, Yes, you did. Yes. Do you remember a particular Doris Day one that I made you watch over and over again? It's ringing a bell, pajama game. You don't remember pillow talk? Of course I remember pillow talk. Can you let me reveal? I was going for a dramatic reveal of all the movies. I'm so sorry. That you I'm made so me sorry. watch. Yes, that's okay. Okay, so pajama game pillow talk. Did this bother you when we were little? Were you like, I don't like these movies. This is weird, or were you like these are awesome? I was not as enthusiastic as you, <laughs> but I loved watching them with someone who was so enthusiastic. It's the most patronizing thing you've ever said to me.
1: Are you sure? I feel like I can be a lot more patronizing than that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know that every family has the lessons that they think are important for the children to learn. Manners that must be taught. Stories that must be passed down. Traditions that have to be kept up. My family was no different. And one of the things that we were taught to love is the movies not just specific ones that must be cherished, but a disposition toward loving the art form. Yes, it was mildly obsessive, but I think charmingly so, unlike what my childhood best friend Kim implies. There was a ghost who required this of us. My dad's dad died at 51. He was a movie reviewer up until his death, the arts and entertainment editor for the Hungarian paper The Oikolet in Israel. He once got to interview Paul Newman, and about Paul Newman, he wrote, God opened his mouth, God closed his mouth. God opened his mouth, God closed his mouth. God was chewing gum. As an immigrant, I think my dad was trying to show us not just the America that we were growing up in, but the America that he fell in love with from across the ocean. Before he learned a word of English, he knew every syllable of Jailhouse Rock. So he, of course, wanted to show us Jailhouse Rock. And he showed us everything he loved with equal fanfare. Ferris Bueller's Day Off was shown to us with the same awe as It's a Wonderful Life. I came to believe in Hollywood endings. And I'll never forget the fear in my father's eyes when I asked him if Tony was really dead in West Side Story. On the screen, beautiful people didn't die. My dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor when I was seven, which might be why the movies that I globbed onto were rom-coms and their cousins. Firstly, my parents didn't have time to pre-screen movies for us anymore. And rom-coms were safe. No dead dogs, no violence, and really almost no sex usually. No matter how big the betrayal is in any of these movies, everything turned out all right in the end. And I learned while I watched. Pretty Woman taught me what first base was. My Best Friend's Wedding taught me what is still some of my favorite advice. This too shall pass. And The Goodbye Girl taught me that women had to be gorgeous and men didn't. These movies were 100% how I constructed my understanding of the world. These movies were my entertainment, but they were also my babysitters and my teachers, and they were my loves. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is our new season of Hot and Bothered. Joanne, if you had to describe the summer that we turned 13, what did we do that summer? We watched Dirty Dancing on repeat. Like, I think if I were to think about that summer, that is the soundtrack because every time it ended, the only time we didn't have Dirty Dancing on was while it was rewinding. Do you remember the feeling? I remember the feeling of being sad when the credits would start rolling. It goes black and white in slow motion. And I hated those credits because I was like, oh, it's over.
1: There were definitely a couple times we
0: rewound it before it got to that point <laughs> so that it wouldn't end. Because I remember either one of our moms, depending on where we were, saying when it ends, it's time to go <laughs> do something, like leave the bedroom. And so we would just rewind (laughs) it so that the movie didn't end. (laughs) That's genius. We were pretty smart. Why do you think we loved this movie so much? What was it about this movie? I don't have a theory. Other than Jennifer Grey is so pretty. I was going to say Patrick Swayze's back. (laughs) We make Hot and Bothered because we are interested in the way that love stories have impacted our specific individual lives, but also our whole culture. We've talked about writing love stories, we've talked about one of the most famous love stories of the last 50 years, Twilight. And our last two seasons of the show, we've read Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice as closely as we could because we believe that these novels and their close compatriots reverberate throughout our culture and our psyches. But when I think about the love stories that shaped me, it wasn't Jane Eyre or Pride and Prejudice as much as I love them now. What really formed me were movies. It was Pillow Talk and Dirty Dancing, but it was also Two Weeks Notice and Chasing Liberty and First Daughter and Love and Basketball. And with some distance now, I look back on some of these movies and I think, wow, these were weird. In fact, what an odd genre I pick the ones that I show my kids kind of carefully. Not because I think they're dangerous, but because I don't want my kids to judge me for what I held so near and dear. Katie, we were on the same freshman floor and it was an all-girls floor. I have a very strong memory around care packages that my mom used to send. Do you remember
1: this? So my memory is that your mother used to send us VHS of all the most recent episodes of Sex in the City. And it was a really big deal on the dorm floor. Such an event when the care package came in. And word would get out. Uh And soon all of us would be like congregated in your room to have a marathon watching session.
0: Do you remember as I do that like 15
1: girls came? I do. I remember it actually got a little crowded in the room. Yes. And I remember that sometimes it got so crowded, I would opt out and then we would like have more viewing sessions later with smaller groups. Yeah. Why do you think we loved this? Because we loved it. Why did we love it? I was thinking about this and I'm not sure I know. I think Part of it was the event, right, of it, and us all being able to, like, watch this sort of marathon session and kind of shut out the world. I remember it sort of, like, now even when I hear the jingle, it's, like, comforting. It's kind of like comfort Mm -hmm. food. It was just something that was always on in the background. But why we chose that, I'm not sure. I think it was the clothes. The clothes. And the shoes. (laughs) Do you also think that as we
0: were like not dating a ton, we were like trying to learn what adult relationships were from Sex in the City?
1: Yeah. I don't know if we were trying to learn, but I think we learned maybe unintentionally some things about adult relationships, which probably didn't translate well into actual adulthood. <laughs>
0: which now I'm trying to unlearn at $200 an hour with a therapist. Yes. <laughs> This season of Hot and Bothered, we are going to watch rom-coms and ask ourselves, why did we love them? But we also want to study how they impacted us and how they work. And most likely, we are still going to love them. The we in this is me, but it is also my new co-host. I will be joined by the amazing podcaster and professor of media studies, Hannah McGregor. Hannah will be joining us after 10 episodes because she already knows things about media studies, but I need to be taught how to watch movies. Books I can do with some confidence. I was an English major. I was an English teacher. I got my master's degree in part about reading scripture, but movie watching, I've only ever been a fan. I have no idea what to look for while trying to dissect these movies and why they worked on me. I don't even know what I don't know. So we are gonna spend the next 10 episodes of Hot and Bothered being taught how to watch movies. We decided that the best thing to do was to pick a single movie and then have experts come on and teach me how the movie works. What are all the things that are happening in this movie that are at play that make this thing successful? The question of course was which movie? So many good options. We had a debate as a staff. Feelings were hurt. But democracy won. We picked the 2003 classic, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days.
2: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three
0: years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. How to lose a guy in 10 days was directed by Donald Petrie. He was coming hot off of miscongeniality, the rom com juggernaut, which released the year before. The screenplay was co-written by three people: Kristen Buckley, Brian Regan, and Burr Steers. Burr Steers, notably, has also written Igby Goes Down and Pride and Prejudice in Zombies, two rather bleak films. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days had a $50 million budget and cleared $177.5 million at the box office. We picked this movie because it is the epitome of the rom-com. The movie has everything. First, it has Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey, regular players in the genre. It is a screwball comedy and a battle of the sexes. It has two secret bets. There is a famous dress, diamonds, a karaoke fight, a dog, and the best friend is played by Katherine Hahn. It is the platonic ideal of a rom-com. It is such a rom-com that it is choking on its own rom comness and I mean that as a compliment. If you haven't seen this movie, next time you're on a plane, just look for it. Or next time you're at a hotel, turn on basic cable. It's there. But in case you don't have any upcoming travel plans, I will tell you what you need to know. Kate Hudson plays Andy Anderson, a journalist for a beauty magazine who just wants to write about war. I want to write about things that matter, like politics and the environment and foreign affairs, things I'm interested in. Matthew McConaughey plays Benjamin Barry, an ad sales guy who's been representing beer and sports for a long time and just wants to represent girly stuff too. Like a new account that's come in, A diamond account in need of an ad campaign.
1: I want to handle this pitch. (laughs) Ben, you sell Joe Blow better than anyone else in my shop. But these girls sell luxury better than anyone else in the business. we have to put our best foot forward on this pitch.
0: Andy writes the magazine's how-to column, How to Feng Shui Your Life, How to Get the Butt You Want. And she pitches a new column about the don'ts of dating, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. And this might be where it's fun to tell you that this movie is actually based on a self-help book of the same name. Andy says that she'll hook a guy that night who wants to be her boyfriend, a historically easy thing to do, and intentionally mess up the relationship by making all of the typical mistakes women make while trying to bait a man. She'll be needy, clingy, bring tampons over to his house. Meanwhile, Ben needs to prove to his boss that he understands women enough to get that big diamond campaign. He agrees to a bet. If he can make a woman fall in love with him, he wins the account. And who should be the woman selected for this bet? Her in the gray dress, blonde hair, pretty smile. Andy, who is going to be horrible to Ben in doing research for her article. And so that's what plays out Andy is actively doing quote unquote girly things to try to get Ben to dump her so she can write an article about the dumb things women do while dating. Ben is actively trying to keep Andy and get her to fall in love with him. So is acting against his manly instincts and putting up with her increasingly cringy shenanigans.
1: Haven't you had enough?
0: And look, I'm willing to do anything. Get up. up. I'll do anything, Andy. She does horrible things, some of which are not horrible, but we are supposed to think are horrible, like pretending not to love basketball, and God forbid, pretending to be a vegetarian. But some of what she does is truly inappropriate, like going to his place of work in the middle of the day to have him try on a shirt in front of his colleagues, or getting him into a fight during a viewing of Sleepless in Seattle. A fun aside is that Ben seems to genuinely like Sleepless in Seattle, which I find incredibly charming. Then, of course, they realize that they were each other's pawns. They break up while scream singing You're So Vain at each other. But don't worry, think the song halfway across a bridge, they meet, they get back together... And they literally ride off into the sunset on Ben's motorcycle. So this is the movie that I'm going to use to have scholars explain to me how to watch movies, not just as a fan, but with a critical eye. This is a movie that people judge. It has a 42% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, but a 72% audience score. Almost all of my friends at least kind of love this movie so I want to be taught how do these movies work what norms of the early 2000s were at play that now in 2024 we're like what would anybody even care about this movie if it wasn't for that great yellow dress is the yellow dress even great what makes it great I'll be taught how to pay attention to costumes and setting and editing and other things that I can't even list for you because I don't know anything about them. After these 10 episodes, I will still need expert help, and that is why I will be joined by Professor Hannah McGregor as my co-host. At that point, we will start going through our list of our favorite rom-coms, one movie at a time. So good news, bad news, this is not a How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days podcast at least not for long, but welcome to our next season of Hot and Bothered. As you all know, on Hot and Bothered, we like to end our episodes by getting some kind of expert on the phone to have some closing conversation with us. We were lucky enough to get someone very special on the phone, the most important guest that I think we will ever have on the show, and that is former co-host Lauren Sandler. Let's give Lauren a call.
2: Hi Lauren. Hi Vanessa. Did it make the funny Skype noise? (laughs) Yes, I have a feeling it did. I love being on the other end of this telephone call, holding the receiver right between my shoulder and my ear.
0: (laughs) Well, while making brownies, right? (laughs) Always and a baby on my hip. (laughs) Yep. No, I know. Okay. So my first question is, I happen to know that you basically are Andy Anderson. You were a magazine writer for women's magazines around this time. What did you feel watching this documentary film of your career?
2: Just to say, I was Andy Anderson in the trying to push people to let me write about Tajikistan sense. (laughs) I never wrote an advice column. My whole aim writing for women's magazines was to push politics and world issues into what I used to call the pink ghetto, right? The women's glossy pages. And so part of me was feeling like, oh God, this is outrageous that we're supposed to think of Andy as being exceptional by caring about world issues and having ambitions beyond whatever this Cosmo quiz sort of thing is. Because I think it sort of gives the idea that the people who are actually paid to write who are women, are actually just genuinely satisfied by writing these sorts of magazine features. But, you know, th- there's like no one who writes features for magazines who who couldn't like run circles around Andy Anderson in terms of pedigree and experience. The people who edit at women's magazines are people who write about politics or have a novel that they have either published or is in their drawer and also graduated from Columbia Journalism School. I will say, however, it was complicated, right? And so the B.B. Newworth character, and I mean, I'm like the biggest B.B. Newirth fan on earth. She can do no wrong. Also, honestly, she's not that different than some of the editors that I worked with at women's magazines, even if they were people who self-identified as feminists and had really put time on the job. I mean, I remember I went to Iraq in 2003 after the invasion and wrote a huge feature for an unnamed magazine about a woman who was on the run from Saddam who had this incredible story. And it was really, you know, there were treacherous circumstances to be reporting under, writing under, filing under, getting edited. Well, I literally heard explosive devices through my tiny little hotel window. And then I came back to New York and My editor met me for lunch and I thought she was going to just take me out to celebrate the rigor and narrative of this story. And instead she said, I'm sorry, we're a fashion magazine. We can't run this story. And I just thought like, yeah, I get it. That is not what anyone was looking at that magazine for at that time. Luckily, things have changed a lot. I think that Andy Anderson would be far more at home in magazines today.
0: I love that you were actually there and that you were actually Andy Anderson, and that had not occurred to us when we got you on the phone. You are Andy Anderson. I am wondering, right, there's like a joke that all men in rom-coms are architects and all women in rom-coms write for magazines. What is it about this world and these glossy magazines that is so... Appealing to us that, like, we want this is what we want to watch our heroines and rom coms do.
2: Well, the magazines themselves are inherently and intentionally aspirational. I mean, all you're doing is looking at perfect bodies and perfect clothes and, you know, perfect interiors. This is a big part of also what gets discussed internally at magazines like these magazines end at motherhood or at least they used mm. to that's changed a mm-hmm. lot because there's nothing aspirational about the reality of having a baby i mean so these aren't things that are accidental they're they're very very intentional and i think that even like the politics are aspirational at this point it's it's sort of become part of the package, but it's still soft, right? Writing is soft and architecture. Not that he's an architect in this, but yes, it's like very, a man who can build things and draw straight lines and still has style, but like, you know, can make you a house. And so I think that there's the aspirational aspect. I also think, you know, we all grow up writing and we all grow up reading and we look at magazines. And so it's a world that we can sort of imagine ourselves into. You know, I mean, if you were to tell me that you worked in a bank or a hospital or whatever, I don't have a way into that unless you lay a lot of groundwork for me because I've never been a person who practices any of those things. But we all write, even if we don't consider ourselves writers. And so I think there's that, you know, low barrier to entry in a way of immediate identification with the characters.
0: And it's a wish fulfillment, right? If we're all writers, what better than to like, Get to go into a beautiful office on Manhattan and have your two best friends on either side of you and just like magically be able to flirt your way into Nick's tickets and have flowers, you know, delivered and have a meeting where you're required to take off your shoes. Like it's just fantasy on top of fantasy.
2: Of course, that's the magazine fantasy, whereas you don't have that fantasy as the poet fantasy or the novelist fantasy. Those are solitary ragged professions. That's where you have holes in your socks instead of a pair of, you know, Manola Blahniks waiting for you.
0: I just love that in the opening scene, she's like, let's grab her this cashmere sweater. <laughs> Apparently, if you work at Composure, there's just free cashmere.
2: I did love the product placement of that though. Of this cashmere company called TSE, or I think it was pronounced Say, which was so accurately New York early aughts cashmere. <laughs> other workplace, though, of course, that we see a lot is advertising. And I just want to think about his workplace for a second, because it is his workplace. that I'm far more bothered by than the magazine world as it's represented. Like I'm nitpicking about those things about the magazine world, but there is nothing about his workplace that feels like there's anything safe or appropriate. We literally meet him sexually harassing a colleague on the sidewalk before he even walks into work. I mean, there are these two women who have been given a huge account and he's going to take it from them by seducing another woman. And his male boss is going to determine if he did it effectively enough. And then, oh my God, is this guy redeemed in any way? Does he say once he gets the deal, I'm so sorry, my female colleagues were clearly the right people for this. (laughs) And this was their work that I have taken from them. I respect the woman I have ostensibly fallen in love with in terms of the fact that she wants to write real journalism. I am also going to respect my female colleagues at work about the fact that they want to represent actual accounts. I mean, it's so nuts. And not just for like the shirt off beefcake moment, which I will admit I enjoyed for a moment, but the fact that this is how this workplace functions and we're supposed to accept it was to me maybe the worst part of the whole movie.
0: I will say what's so interesting, Lauren, is that is the first time that I've realized a big difference between rom-coms and romance novels. In a romance novel, he would have had to do that. He would have to be totally redeemed and actually have also apologized to the women who he works with, right? Like These happily ever afters in romance novels are all about total redemption, but in rom-coms, I think because you can see them, as long as there's a kiss, there's something emotionally that happens to you that you're like, no, it's been resolved.
2: I mean, clearly like the central question of this film, which they set up very, very clearly is whether all is fair in love and war. And to me, I feel like really it's, what about the workplace? Is all fair in love and the workplace? And the answer is No, no. But this question of fairness and redemption, it's such a strange movie to me, like trying to figure out what this movie actually thinks about love or what this movie actually even thinks about attraction, what this movie thinks about beauty, what this movie thinks about women. It's I
0: can't figure it out. Oh, this movie believes in the cool girl. Like vegetarianism, not cool. Liking the Knicks, cool. Liking Celine Dion, not cool or attractive. Not liking cigar smoke. What a loser. 2003, and we are still in the full throes of like, women can have it all, but they still have to have it all in five-inch heels.
2: And what they get if they have it all is a sexually harassing, betraying, account-stealing, dude for whom it feels like she only falls for him when she feels guilty about visiting his mom it doesn't build any sense of why she's into him other than how he looks which is very good i mean like based on their smiles watching them smile at each other fine cut and print i get it but anything beyond that like i i
0: can't find it there are two attractive moments to me One, he likes Sleepless in Seattle. He turns to her, she's talking in the movie, and he's like, shh, shh, I'm actually really enjoying this movie. And I'm like, that's awesome. And two, he walks into his parents' house, takes a baby, sniffs the baby's butt, and goes and changes the diaper, and doesn't act like it's heroic at all. Those are the two moments that I'm like, yeah. Sure. Is that enough? Is that enough for you, Vanessa? (laughs) No, of course (laughs) I am... A hundred percent team Andy in terms of my sexual attraction. And I do think that's part of it. I can't take my eyes off of her. I'm glad you found him to be eye candy. I like don't even in this movie, all of her skin. I'm like, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. And I think that that's part of it. I think women love staring at other women, like straight or not. I do just think that we love staring at other women. So I just think it's a love story about us and Andy.
2: Oh, I totally agree. And that's the only thing that makes this movie work, right, is... It's the Lizzie syndrome. charisma, her humor, her smile, her skin.
0: No, I absolutely think that this movie actually intentionally sets it up so that Andy is the good guy and Ben is along for the ride. Andy even gets this assignment saving her best friend. The opening scene is her rescuing a best friend and being like, you can't get in trouble at work. Like, and she's the one who changes that allows them to fall in love. She's the one who's like, I can't lie to your mom. This has to be where I draw the line. She's the one who draws a line. Ben never does. I absolutely think he's Darcy and she's Lizzie. And this is just a love story between
2: us and her. I totally agree with you. Another deal breaker for me, representing a diamond firm. Can we talk about this for a second? Blood Diamond, the movie had not come out yet. That was like, I think the next year, but there was massive, massive media around conflict diamonds and how evil these companies are and what they represent. And the fact that what they choose for the account that's supposed to just make women feel fabulous and understand what women want and be celebrated is a frigging blood diamond company. (laughs) This is the strangest movie to me. See, the thing that bothers me the most about
0: the premise of this film is actually that you can hook a guy in one night who's going to want to be your boyfriend. And just like the confidence of that, I'm like, that is the antithesis of every message I've gotten about how hard it is to get a boyfriend in New York City.
2: Well, you can do it if you look like Kate Hudson. And you (laughs) might have noticed that out of everything that she could come up with to lose a guy, There was never not wearing makeup, having her hair look bad. Oh, sorry. When she goes curly, that's when you know she's really let it down, right? I know. I'm (laughs) obsessed
0: with it. I want to trace curls throughout rom coms. Yeah,
2: I think that there's a whole thesis to be written on this. Thank you. Me too. From one curly girl to another. Especially when it's curly and when it's not. Yes. It's supposed to be indicating about where we're at in the narrative, how we feel about this person. Yes. Yeah, because it's much easier than actually writing real vulnerability into a script or having to perform it as a character.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love you. Thank you for coming and being part of this first episode. I can't imagine doing it without you.
2: I love you. I'm jealous of everyone who's going to be part of this except me. And I just want, (laughs) as a final note to say, never try to take your motorcycle on the Staten Island Ferry because it's passengers only. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: P.S.A. <laughs> you have been listening to our new season of Hot and Bothered. We are a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the Valentine season. This is a way to show your love. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producers are Caitlin Hoffmeister and me, Vanessa Zoltan. We are edited and produced by Ariana Nettleman, my Valentine. And we are distributed by 8Cast. We love to shout out our soulmate-level patrons, Elise Kanagaratnam, Gretchen Sneegas, Molly Reilly, Kristen Hall, Leah B., Becky Boo, and Biddy Higgins. I would also like to thank Three of my all-time best friends, not just for coming on the podcast, but for watching and re-watching movies with me throughout my formative years, Kim Eisenstein, Katie Aiken, and Joanne Cress. And of course, thank you so much to Lauren Sandler and our team, Julia Argi, Nikki Zoltan, AJ Ramos, Hannah Rehack, Margaret H. Wilson, Courtney Brown, Natalie Folkerts, Casper Kyle, Stephanie Paulsell.